0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: And I'm Jordan Rubin.
0: You know, Jordan, for a court that was supposedly off this week, there was a lot of news coming out of SCOTUS. Mm -hmm. We will bring you up to speed on the latest COVID petitions, uh, some death penalty cases, and check in again on the Mueller report but our focus for this Deep Dive episode is yet another census case, making this what must be the most litigated census in history. Uh, But before we do the heavy task of, quote, counting the whole number of persons in each state, let's chat COVID restrictions and the impact on religious liberty uh, just off the heels of Justice Alito's provocative speech at the Federalist Society, alleging that COVID-19 has an Increased already growing threat to religious rights, the Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and two Orthodox Jewish synagogues asked the court to lift restrictions put in place by New York Governor Cuomo. Tell us what's going on there, Jordan.
1: Sure. So, Kimberly, as you mentioned, this comes after Justice Alito recently mentioned that he's worried that religious freedom is becoming a disfavored right in this country. Uh, Soon we may get a sense of to what extent the new Supreme Court, with Justice Barrett thinks that's the case, or in reality makes that the case, given the Supreme Court's power to decide whether that's so. As you mentioned, there are two cases from New York, both dealing with an order from New York Governor Cuomo limiting in-person attendance at religious services to 10 or 25 people, depending on the COVID cases in the specific area. So we have two challenges that are pending at the court from the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and Orthodox Jewish religious groups. As to the case involving the diocese, New York said after the case was filed that the Cuomo restrictions are being loosened in the region where the diocese churches are. So there could be some potential mootness there, but either way, the court has both cases on the docket and we might see in one or both of them what this new court with Justice Barrett will do. Remember we had those cases previously involving churches in California California and Nevada, where, again, that Nevada case was a pretty big feature of Justice Alito's speech. And so we could see the court, this newly composed court, now that Barrett has replaced Ginsburg and what the court does in this COVID era with religion cases. And there's one other case too, right, that deals with church attendance issues
0: that's right so i'll talk about that one but i will say to our listeners that mootness is going to be kind of a theme for uh this deep dive episode that's right uh but one case that is not yet moot um give it time i guess is that just this week a pastor for a mega church in louisiana asked the court to lift that state's restrictions on in-person gatherings saying that it should be left up to the churches themselves to decide how best to worship and noted, noting that houses of worship are treated worse than other establishments like businesses. Mark Anthony's Spell and his congregation continue to meet in person during the pandemic. The petition says that the local government has since brought criminal charges against him. And um, so we're waiting to hear from the court whether or not they're going to ask the state to respond But we'll keep watching it. In addition to these COVID petitions, we got some capital cases at the court, right, Jordan? Um, The court had another late night.
1: That's right. And so we're recording this on Friday morning on the 20th. And to set a bit of the backdrop... We talked a little bit about the federal government resuming executions after a 17-year break this past summer, and that resulted in some late-night 5-4 orders back when Justice Ginsburg was on the court. This week, we got the first taste of what these types of orders will be like with Justice Barrett on the court, and the short answer is they won't be different. The death row inmates are still losing. It's just going to be by a potentially wider margin. And so, We have three executions that are set for this lame duck period, which is something that has not happened in a very long time. And the first of those was this week of Orlando Hall. There are a lot of issues that he raised in the case, including uh, being a black man having been sentenced to death by an all white jury, issues with wanting to raise clemency issues, but his lawyers having difficulty doing so because of COVID, and issues relating to the execution protocol, which was an issue that surfaced this past summer in that litigation at the court and so we got another of these late night orders as you mentioned last night in Hall's case where the court ruled against him. And again, this raises the shadow docket issue that we have talked about, how the court doesn't explain itself in these rulings, or usually doesn't. And so there was no explanation from the majority of the court. And we know that there was a majority to speak of and a dissent because at least three justices noted their dissent, the remaining members of the liberal wing, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer. And so after that, order that clear the way for Hall's execution, the first of these lame duck period federal executions. And so there's a bunch more litigation going on with the remaining two cases that maybe we'll talk about in some future episodes if they wind up coming up to the court.
0: Now, I saw some um, <clears throat> pleas from senators asking the Justice Department to hold off on these executions until the Biden administration can take a look at them. What uh, What's the over under on that, that the- DOJ is going to not go forward with these executions.
1: I'd say the odds of that are pretty close to zero because the Trump administration very recently set these executions, It's not something that had been pending for a while and the Trump administration hadn't been thinking of. For example, Hall's execution, which went forward last night, that was just set in October. And so it's very unlikely that the Trump administration is going to change the discretion it just recently exercised in setting these executions. A bigger pending question during this lame duck period, which I've seen rumor of, nothing concrete though, is whether there are actually going to be more lame duck executions set for this period on the administration's way out. So... Between the question of what happens with the remaining two executions and whether there's any successful litigation on their part there or whether there are any new executions set are the questions that I'm looking at over the next couple months.
0: Well, um, thank you for keeping an eye on those for us. Um, Should we talk about the Mueller report?
1: Let's do it. The infamous Mueller report, which dominated the news cycle for a good part of the Trump presidency and is now finally at the Supreme Court might be going away with a whimper, right?
0: That's right, so just as the justices are probably happy that at least one of the New York COVID petitions might go away, they're probably also happy not to deal with the Mueller report. Now, I previously said that this case is the least interesting way that anyone could ever talk about that controversial report, so I won't get too much into the details. But the justices set argument in the case for December 2nd, asking whether the House Judiciary Committee could get unredacted copies in order to investigate impeachment charges against President Trump. The, the House put out the possibility of another impeachment to avoid mooting the case following the pre- President Trump's acquittal in the Senate, which was just earlier this year, that seems crazy that can't be right that was probably seven years ago right yeah so the house now asks the supreme court to take the case off of the calendar so that a new congress can decide if it wants to continue to pursue these documents given that um i don't know uh trump will soon be former president trump
1: so let's talk about a case that we know is definitely going to be argued although that has some of its own Potential issues that came up recently, too, right?
0: Yeah, it did. And we'll talk about that a little bit with our guest. Uh, This case is the third time that the 2020 census has been up to the high court. Uh, To recap, the census is not only used to determine the number of Congress members each state gets, but it's also used to dole out hundreds of billions of dollars of federal funds. This summer, President Trump instructed the Census Bureau to exclude undocumented immigrants from the apportionment portion of the census. It now seems unlikely that the Census Bureau, even if it figures out a way how to accurately estimate the number of immigrants to be excluded, it's unlikely that the Census Bureau can do it in time, that is, before President-elect Joe Biden is inaugurated. So, Jordan, uh, before we get to our guests, why don't you tell us what the Trump administration is arguing here?
1: Sure. And this is in the case called Trump against New York. So the Trump administration's position here is twofold. The case, as we'll talk about with our guest, is broadly separated into merits and standing issues. So the district court here, it found there'd be a chilling effect on census participation if the government were to exclude non-citizens from the census count. But the Trump administration says that any issue that there was there is moot by now because field data collection ended on October 15th. And Trump also says the notion of a chilling effect is too speculative to support standing anyway. They say that it's too theoretical that's the gist of the administration's position
0: and then on the merits uh, what is the Trump administration arguing
1: so on the merits one of the things that the Trump administration says is that the Commerce secretary has the discretion subject to the president's direction of how to go about conducting the census and determining the persons in each state for apportionment purposes
0: and they and they note that you know the Commerce Department has actually set some regulations about um, residency and where to count someone, if they have disputed residency, or connections to different states. Um, So that's basically the gist of, of their argument. Should we chat about this with our guest?
1: Let's. Mahogany Reed is with the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She's the John Payton Appellate and Supreme Court Advocacy Fellow there. LDF is supporting New York in the case Trump against New York that's coming up for argument on November 30th, and Mahogany is going to help us break down some of the issues in that case. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. So it feels like this must be the most litigated census in in history. Um, can you give us a little background about how we got here um, and what it is that the Supreme Court's going to decide this time around? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right.
2: Um, this is the third big census case that uh, the court has the opportunity to opine on in the last two terms. Um, the first one was the Department of Commerce versus New York. Um, there, the Supreme Court basically shut down the administration's attempt to add a citizenship question to the census questionnaire. Um, That was a a 5-4 decision authored by Chief Justice Roberts, who joined the four more liberal justices um, and basically held that although the Secretary of Commerce has the authority, the constitutional authority to add a citizenship question to the census questionnaire, um, he didn't go about doing it properly under the, the Federal Administrative Procedure Act. And so uh, shortly after that decision, the administration abandoned its, um, its quest to add a citizenship question to the uh, census questionnaire. Uh, and then just a few months ago, or maybe it was last month, I'm um, getting my month all mixed up. Who
0: can remember? <laughs>
2: um, in, in Ross versus National Urban League, the court... Um, permitted the Census Bureau to go ahead and wrap up census field operations um, in October, well ahead of uh, a, a deadline it roughly set for itself for later on in the year and into 2021. This is the third um, in the, the line of, of cases, census cases. This one deals directly with um, the, the apportionment process in the decennial census process and in it the court's going to decide whether the president who issued a memo in july of this year uh, directing the secretary to include in its report which typically includes a state-by-state breakdown of the populations in the United States, the total populations in the United States, to include also data by which the president can um, exclude undocumented immigrant persons from the total population count for purposes of apportioning representatives among the several states, whether that is constitutional um, and lawful under federal census law.
0: And so uh, this case is being fast-tracked by the Supreme Court, And we uh, because of certain deadlines uh, that are set for when the bureau has to report these numbers, when the president has to deliver them to Congress. Um, But we got a little news the other day that these deadlines may not be reachable. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was maybe yesterday that
2: uh, several news outlets started reporting that the Census Bureau staff would need additional time to fix some anomalies that have arisen in the data processing portion of the uh, decennial census process. Um, so this means that the release of apportionment data could be delayed until after the president leaves office in uh, on
1: January 20th. And so what? And we're going to get into a little into a little bit more about what the exact legal issues are that are in play here. But so we'll talk about maybe this part of it first, just since we brought it up. What could be the effect of this recent news on the outcome of the case?
2: Yeah. So we don't know quite yet whether the um, the delay in reporting final census data will uh, affect the Census Bureau's ability to produce. Um, the estimates of undocumented immigrant persons under the president's July 21, 2020 memo, but um, it certainly will impact the president's ability to um, determine at the first instance, what the total population of persons among the several states is, um, and and what the apportionment base based on typical uh, census data is among the several states.
0: So we're just kind of—I mean—I think it's not a wild guess to say that if these numbers were delivered to President Joe Biden, then um, he would not want to exclude uh, undocumented immigrant persons from this this list. So um, timing is important here. Absolutely.
1: So regardless of what effect this latest news has, let's get into a little bit what the legal issues are that the court's going to be grappling with at the argument. So I guess. One way to break it down is between the merits and the standing issue, the standing issue, which could be pretty important. But first, let's let let's talk about the merits part first, which the lower court said actually is not a close call. Mahogany, can you talk a little bit just about the, the merits of the case, and then we can talk about the standing issue?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the plaintiffs in the case who are um, states with large uh, immigrant person populations and um, Organizations that uh, whose members are are largely um, non-immigrant persons argued that the presidential memo um, violated federal statutes and federal constitutional law that requires that the apportionment base be based on the uh, whole number of persons in each state. That's both from the Fourteenth Amendment and from uh, the Census Act itself, um, and by Uh, for for the whole history of this country, dating back to this country's founding, this demographic, the whole number of persons in each state has included everyone who resides in the United States, regardless of citizenship status um, or eligibility to vote. Um, And the president's memo takes a different reading of this phrase and argues that it doesn't mean all persons, but only inhabitants or usual residents, um, um, which it, has taken upon itself to to mean that persons domiciled in the state and who have received the permission of the sovereign to remain in the country are inhabitants of this country for purposes of apportionment. Um, so that was the the position of the government below. the the three dish, The three judge district court panel rejected that interpretation, um, and that is the argument the the administration is advancing before the Supreme Court. Whether the whole number of persons. Um, means exactly what those words say or whether there's some some nuance there that the the president and the administration can can read out based on immigration law and immigration status
0: yeah i'm wondering what that kind of argument um is how that's going to be received by the justices you know we have a six three conservative majority on the court um but as justice kagan said we're all textualists now so just from a textualist reading um you know, I'm reminded of the Bostock case uh, recently where, you know, Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion saying, you know, anti federal anti-discrimination laws say what they, you know, what they say. And that includes uh, those protect LGBT uh, workers. And, you know, we don't look beyond that. It, this seems to be kind of a similar argument. And I just wonder how it's going to be received by this court.
2: Yeah, I um, certainly, I think the the, The words of the statute and the words of the the 14th Amendment are are clear. Um, um, Something that may be imported here is that when the textualist or originalists interpret uh, constitutional provisions, um, they interpret it based on the original public meaning of of the words, of the terms. And so the 14th Amendment um, and even Article 1 uh, section 2 of the Constitution, both of which contemplate that apportionment will be based on the whole number of persons in the state, That the, the the justices are going to be interested in what that means, not only based on the plain words of the, the text of the constitutional provisions, but but also what the founders of the the country thought those words meant, what they intended with, with those words, what, uh, you know, was popularly believed to be the meaning of those words, not only um, in 1789, but also when the 14th Amendment was passed uh, in um, the 1860s.
0: And so our producer loves it when we talk about standing. Um, <clears throat> but standing is really important here this is kind of where um where at least the lower court thought that the you know most of the ball game was and so can you tell us a little bit about the standing arguments here um and you know what the justices will be talking about absolutely um so the government
2: below the government has argued that um the appellees which are again states and localities and then organizations who that represent the interests of of non-immigrant persons um, lack standing on a couple of bases Um, the first is that the states and organizations claims of representational harm and federal funding harm um, are basically too right to adjudicate at this point um, so the states argue that the president's memo will result in uh, fewer congressional representatives for their states and in fewer federal dollars flowing into the state um, because of reduced uh, a, a reduced apportionment base. Um, The state, the government or the administration argues that nobody will know the effect of the president's directive on apportionment, whether states with large populations of immigrant persons will actually lose congressional representation until after the House seats are reapportioned consistent with the directive and the presidential memo. The same thing with federal funding. It's hard to say right now whether and how much federal funding these states will actually lose based on the president's apportionment directive. Um, And also. uh, the the three judge panel below did find that the states and the uh, the organizational plaintiffs had standing based on the uh, quote-unquote chilling effect that the presidential memo will have on um, immigrant persons' propensity to respond to um, the census. The court considered this theory of standing with respect to the citizenship question in the Department of Commerce versus New York case and held that the plaintiffs there did have standing. I don't think that renders this standing inquiry a slam dunk or, or something that the justices can pass over in this case because, again, we're not dealing with the census or the census questionnaire itself, we're dealing with um, apportionment and the president's uh, ability to exclude persons from the apportionment base, which happens well after the uh, census uh, field operations and responses to the field the census questionnaire are due back. So um, the, the court will have to consider whether that renders uh, rendered the claim moot at the point at which field operations. Uh, wrapped up, um, and if not, what effect that will have uh, on the, the, the plaintiff's standing.
1: And so what's the argument for why it isn't moot and why they do have standing?
2: The argument for why it isn't moot and they do still have standing is that the issue wouldn't necessarily be moot, especially on the argument the government advances, which is that ultimately um, on appeal it's possible that there are two arguments. Ultimately, on appeal, it was possible that um, the district court's uh, finding that not only the plaintiffs have standing, but that the president's memo is unconstitutional could be reversed on appeal Um, and that the likelihood of it being reversed on appeal, um, at least early on when the field operations were still ongoing, uh, rendered the, the possibility of the relief given by the district court moot. Um, and and that theory would basically put into question all cases, standing in in, all, in, in lots of cases where, um, you know, there's a, a, at least one party believes there's a strong likelihood of reversal on appeal um, that could could render the relief offered moot. But the government also argues that there was is a mismatch between the relief sought or the relief granted and the the. The relief granted by the district court, which is um, a holding that the presidential memo is unlawful, and then the relief sought, which is equal uh, apportionment among the, the among the the several states, um, and that the. S- the responses to the census questionnaire have little to nothing to do with that. There are um, lots of intervening causes um, that might cause someone to not respond to the census and and the the, uh, apportionment memo itself is is not one of them. The citizenship question, in short, there was a much more direct line between the citizenship question and uh, responses to the census questionnaire than between the presidential memo and the Uh, responses to the census questionnaire.
1: And so I'm wondering if you want to talk maybe a little bit about the brief that you worked on and what LDF's position here is. You know, just looking at it at a broader level, especially maybe for someone who doesn't follow this issue, maybe isn't familiar with the intricacies of the Constitution, you look at a question like this just from a broad perspective and say, yeah, they just want to ask, Count citizens on the census. What's the problem with that?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, LDF, we submitted an amicus brief and, and we um, are advancing the argument that, as we discussed before, the plain text of the 14th Amendment requires um, a count of the whole number of persons in each state. And, and that's... Um, uh, was the intent of the 14th amendment, which was to secure equal political representation. One of the purposes of the 14th amendment was to secure equal political representation for uh, black citizens who uh, before the 14th amendment um, as enslaved black persons were not afforded um, equal representation under the the three fifths clause um, that the 14th amendment um, explicitly rejected. And so, um, to the extent that is one of the purposes of the 14th Amendment to secure equal political representation, the the decennial census is, and apportionment provisions are are crucial in ensuring that that happens. Um, And the decennial census has, censuses have consistently Um, undercounted Black people and thereby deprive them of equal political representation. Um, The administration's plan to exclude undocumented persons from the apportionment count will only exacerbate the limitation of access to political representation and uh, resources in these communities and would adversely impact Black immigrant communities, um, a statistic we cite in our brief is that one in 10 black people in the United States are immigrant persons and uh, 42% of them are um, not citizens and approximately 15% are undocumented. So the administration's approach would uh, really get at the heart of, of, uh, of the purpose of the 14th Amendment and, and undercut it, especially in these large uh, communities of black immigrant people.
0: So, Jordan, I don't know how you think about this case, but that standing question seems really difficult to get over. It seems like uh, like an argument that the justices would probably be happy to get rid of this case on.
1: That's right. And that's become sort of a theme of the term in the podcast. I feel like we were just talking about that in the ACA case, how standing could be a potential issue there. So.
0: Anything to not have to decide the tough issues, right? Exactly. Well, I think that should probably do it for us today. Uh, We'll be back at you next week with a sneak peek of the next arguments in which the census case will be kicking off the sitting. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. The killers of Berta Caceres had every reason to believe they'd get away with murder, her work as an environmental activist won her the admiration of celebrities in California, politicians in Washington, and the indigenous communities she worked alongside in Honduras. It also earned her powerful enemies. On a new podcast from Bloomberg Green, Blood River follows a four-year quest to find Berta Caceres' killers. Join journalist Monty Real and the team from Bloomberg Green as they untangle false leads and mishandled evidence, taking listeners deep into a sector of international development that's marked by high-level corruption and rampant violence. Blood River debuts Monday, July 27th on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.